The 57th Psalm. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a michtam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. In the midst of it, they have themselves fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Wonderful words. Um, I'm going to read our sermon text in a minute, but like I did before the uh, Prophecy Update, I want to announce that uh, the bandana I'm wearing is a special bandana that was sent to me by one of our missionaries. Uh, She's over in Southeast Asia. I cannot give either her name or her location, but um, she sent this to me and uh, wanted me to wear it during a Prophecy Update, and I happen to have a nice shirt to match it. And on here is not some weird, you know, Islamic symbol or something or Illuminati symbol or whatever. All it is is a uh, knife. It's a symbol that they use throughout Southeast Asia. It's known as a kris. And when I lived in Southeast Asia, you saw them, you know, just everywhere. It was just like a symbol of uh, the people. And uh, anyway, so I wanted to thank this person. She knows who she is. She watches these um, when she's uh, at her uh, posting. And uh, she means a great deal to me. Several of the people here in the church have gone out on uh, mission walks with her on a Saturday morning when she comes back uh, to America. Instead of taking a vacation, she comes and does mission work with us. She's a real servant of the Lord, and I want to thank her personally for this, this uh, bandana. I'll cherish it. Um, all right, our sermon text today is from Exodus chapter 14. It's verses 1 through 9. Uh, the sermon is entitled, The Lord is Watching. Verse 14, verse one, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered in, by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord and they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth before Baal Zephon. (laughs) Excuse me. Today's sermon was one of my favorite to type in a very long time. 
it went quickly, which is always a bonus because it takes a long time to do these sermons. And it gave me some fun challenges as far as names and such. And it continues to bring us ever closer to that wondrous story that has been told and retold for thousands of years. Like the Passover, what lies ahead of Israel is something that really identified them as a people. No other group has ever been brought through the deep waters of an ocean as if on dry land. It is an honor and it is a responsibility. Unfortunately, throughout their history, they have forgotten the honor and they have neglected the responsibility. But haven't we all? How often do we forget that these stories picture our own process of salvation? And that occurred, obviously, in our own lifetime. And yet at times we act as if it either never happened or that it doesn't really have the significance of walking through a deep ocean. But I tell you that the cross of Jesus Christ was infinitely more significant than the death of a mere lamb. And being led to the point where a deep ocean lies in front of us is nothing compared to the span that we will travel at the rapture. Let's keep these things in perspective, okay? One of the places we will hear about today is called Baal Zephon. I will identify that with the Lord when we get to that verse. But most people think of Baal as a bad word. We can't tie that in with the Lord, can we? Actually, Baal simply means master or Lord. And so when we get to that verse, I want to prepare you with another place in Scripture where the word Baal is ascribed to the Lord. That way, you don't panic when I give you my thoughts about Baal Zephon. Our text verse comes from 2 Samuel 5. It's verse 20. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. See, that wasn't so tough. David named the place Baal Perazim because it is the Lord, Jehovah, who broke through his enemies like a great breakthrough of water. Great stuff from another great story. Now let's get into today's story now. Time's a-wasting, and those verses are not going to evaluate themselves, will they? All kinds of great stuff is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is, the wilderness has closed them in. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, chapter 14 begins with the first thought being divided into two separate verses, offsetting the introduction into its own verse. Although not uncommon, dividing verses this way is the exception rather than the rule. In fact, it's the only time a verse is divided this way in all of chapter 14. As always, I try to highlight these unusual divisions because they lengthen the number of verses in a chapter and thus the number of verses in the Bible. And yet, looking at patterns which run throughout the Bible based on verse divisions, it becomes apparent that these offset sections of single sentences were necessary to form those patterns. It shows wisdom behind the structure of the Bible, which is far more than mere chance could ever allow. In this verse, scholars debate as to whether it should actually say, now the Lord had spoken to Moses or now the Lord spoke to Moses. From the context, it can't really be determined if these words came before their departure or during the journey, and it doesn't really substantially change the narrative in any way to translate it either way. So if your version says one thing and another version says another, don't get upset about it. Verse 2, 
Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth. Depending on the map one chooses to believe concerning the route of the Exodus, one may say that the crossing of the Red Sea was merely crossing through a shallow marsh in the area of the Bitter Lakes, or it could be a crossing of the western finger of the Red Sea between Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. Or, more recently, others will claim that the travel that we are looking at here in this verse would lead us all the way down to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula and that the crossing is in the east finger of the Red Sea and into where Saudi Arabia is today. Each trek is adamantly adhered to by those who believe that they are right, no matter how wrong they actually are. The first option is utter nonsense. It was not a shallow marsh that consumed the entire Egyptian army. That will become obvious when we get to that sermon. The third option, although very popular today, is unlikely at best. It's not even likely. So it is supposedly based on Paul's words, which are found in Galatians 4, verse 25, which say that Mount Sinai that he went to visit is in Arabia. However, Arabia of today does not reflect the entirety of the same area known as Arabia in the past. The Sinai Peninsula is known as Arabia Petraea, and so there is no reason to believe that Mount Sinai is in what is known as today Saudi Arabia, despite many wild claims which are wholly unsubstantiated. And the person that most prevalently brought this about was a guy named Ron Wyatt. If you've heard of him, the guy says that he found the crossing of the Red Sea. It's down there in that area. He found chariots in the water. He took pictures of these things that are supposedly chariot wheels. And it's over in Saudi Arabia where he found Mount Sinai, which nobody had ever found before. And then he found Noah's Ark and he found Jesus' birth certificate. He found the Ark of the Covenant. I was kidding about the birth certificate. He found Sodom and Gomorrah. He found everything. This guy, and he has no proof for any of it. It's all lies, and so if you believe this stuff, then you've been misled. Ron Wyatt was not a truthful man. He didn't find all the things that he said he did, and there's no way that this happened on the east finger of the Red Sea. The distance from Egypt to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula is over 200 miles. As only three stops are recorded from Ramses to the edge of the Red Sea, it is not to be believed that two million people would walk that distance, one in 72 hours and two doing it in three stops. Rather, the route of these journeys would have taken them down the west side of the west finger of the Red Sea to a point known as Pi-Hahiroth. The first route uh, was to the southeast with the Bitter Lakes to their left and still within the borders of Egypt. Eventually, the route which we are given in this verse moves them from southeast to heading directly south with the Red Sea on their left, but still within the borders of Egypt. As they moved without the Egyptians harassing them, they would have had no reason to worry as they followed this pillar of cloud and fire. That this is obviously the correct one is that Pharaoh would know that they were still in his territory and were completely cut off from any avenue of escape or even defense. His words later will confirm this, and it is the reason why, once again, his heart becomes hard. The Lord is setting up a marvelous miracle in order for it to occur. Understanding this, the words for the children of Israel to turn and camp before Pihahiroth are clear. In essence, go south along the western edge of the Red Sea to a place called Pihahiroth. The Hebrew reads 
and camp in the face of the mouth of Hahiroth. The word P means mouth. Hahiroth means the gorges. It comes from the feminine plural of a noun, which then comes from the word chor, which means whole. The picture then is that they will camp in the face of the mouth of the gorges. This then forms a very exciting mental picture of what's going on. The Lord has directed the children of Israel south down on the Red Sea, and it's on their left. And they're at a place of an encampment that has gorges facing them from the west. In other words, they're going to be completely hemmed in. There will be no way to escape to the east or to the north. you got the Egyptians coming down from the north. And being on foot, continuing south along the side of the Red Sea would only end in futility as it would eventually run into more mountains and garrisons. Should someone come attacking them, they would be literally hemmed in with their backs to the ocean. It appears that only death and destruction would be possible in such a place. Verse 2 continues, between Migdol and the sea. Migdol comes from the word gadal, which means to grow up or to become great. Thus, Migdol means power. The location for the encampment was between the sea and a place with a large natural or man-made tower. This would probably have been manned as an outpost, and word of their travels would have easily been dispatched from there to Pharaoh. It seems intentional that the word Migdol is mentioned for this very purpose. It is meant to show us that a report made it back to Pharaoh that this giant contingent of people had taken up camp on the shores of the Red Sea. Verse 2 continues, Opposite Baal Ziphon, like Pihahiroth and Migdol, The location of this place today cannot be identified. All three of them were lost to time. But it could be that the names were simply names that were given at the time that they were used by the Israelites, not as specific names of known locations. Baal Zephon means either Lord of Darkness, Lord of the North, or Lord of the Watch. And the third is correct. It's appropriate to the context. The root for this word is Sapah which conveys the idea of being fully aware of a situation in order to gain some advantage or keep from being surprised by an enemy. And it is exactly what the Lord is doing here. He is fully aware of the situation, and he will certainly gain advantage of it. Further, he is in no way surprised by the coming enemy. In fact, he's merely awaiting their arrival. This place, Baal Zephon, would be on the opposite side of the Red Sea from Pihahiroth. Verse 2 continues, you shall camp before it by the sea. The directions here are specific. The Israelites are to camp on the shore of the sea across from or before Baal Zephon on the other side of the sea. From a survey of Google Maps, there's a place at the northern tip of the west finger of the Red Sea known today as Ataka, which has a jutting beachhead, okay, and it's just big enough for several million people to camp there. Across from it is another jutting beachhead, a little to the north and to the east of it. It's close enough to the area where the Suez Canal now ends, but it is also believed that the Red Sea went further north in the past. So it could be that the exodus actually occurred in what is now dry land, but that is very unlikely because the land is flat in that area with no gorges off to the west. The scholar Lang agrees that this account is in the area of Ataka. It's very, very well matches the description. 
From this location, you can see directly across the Red Sea and into Sinai. In reality, it is close enough to have been reached in three stops, and no matter what, it is enticing. I got to tell you what, do it. It is enticing to look at real images of the area and to speculate. I went through and I actually made some photos of this for the sermon because it is so interesting, and it certainly is a place I think is probably where this occurred. Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. From these words, it is apparent that Pharaoh was instructed by his outposts of the location of the Israelites. It also shows that he knew their position was unfavorable for them to get away. With this verse, we can dismiss the possibility that they were already in the Sinai Peninsula and heading south towards Saudi Arabia. They were certainly still within the borders of Egypt and along the west side of the western finger of the Red Sea. The word for bewildered in this verse is book. It's used only here in Esther and in the book of Job, and it means to be confused. The wilderness of this verse is speaking of the area between the Nile Valley and the Red Sea. It is, even today, and go look at it on Google Maps, it's a vast and it's an empty wilderness. Even at Pharaoh's time, there would have been a highway along the sea. But with the mountains and wadis and deserts and garrisons, it would be impossible for such a group of people to head west up into the area of the gorges. What he sees as confusion is actually a trap for his hard heart to be ensnared by. The temptation is too great for this hardened fool. Baal Zephon is on the other side of the sea. Why did the Lord even mention that to me? Here we are at Pihahiroth, and between us is plenty, and I mean plenty of water an entire sea. I was told to camp here between Migdol and the sea. Opposite Baal Zephon is the place that he instructed me. The folks in that watchtower don't have intentions so friendly, but here we are because we were told to camp before it by the sea. Trust and obey. This is what the Lord has directed me, and so here we are camping by the sea. The Lord is watching. I say that quite confidently as we sit across from Baal Zephon, just as the Lord instructed me. Our second thought is, I will gain honor over Pharaoh. It's verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Again, as has been seen in every single mentioning of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus account, it is obvious from the context that by the things the Lord has caused to occur, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is only passive by the Lord. The previous verse shows us this with all clarity. It said, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. The events have been orchestrated by the Lord. Pharaoh has hungrily lusted after the events, and Pharaoh has willingly yielded to his lusts. We have not found one single instance of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart where the hardening has been active by the Lord. And it would be good to remember this as a guide and a lesson to each one of us concerning our theology. We are responsible for our actions, even if the events around us prompt us to make them. In the end, through good times or evil, we must be willing to keep our hearts soft to the things of God and ready to accept his divine will for us, even if we find it contrary to what we desire. Verse 4 going on, And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army. We have to remember and not forget that these words are being spoken to Moses. He may not yet know what will occur, but he knows that whatever the Lord has in mind, it will come to pass. 
He's already seen Egypt defeated, and now he is given a promise that the Lord will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army. The term for, and I will gain honor, is ve'ikabeda. It's a verb which signifies heaviness or weight. In the context of the Lord's actions, then, it means that he will be glorified over Pharaoh by his actions. Verse 4 goes on, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Verse 4 is a close parallel to what the Lord said to Moses in chapter 7. Just prior to his first meeting with Pharaoh, there we read these words. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart to multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Unfortunately, this concept of someone knowing that he is the Lord carries with it an often very sad connotation. The book of Ezekiel in particular shows us what it really means. About 60 times in that book, he says that so-and-so will then know that I am the Lord. Almost always, it is in conjunction with just one of two thoughts, either divine judgment or divine mercy. In the case of Egypt, they will come to know that he is the Lord through the former when they are destroyed in the Red Sea. The implication is that they will know who he is only after their fate is sealed. The reality of that occurrence becomes assured with the final words of verse 4. And they did so. Knowing the obstinate nature of the man, the ploy worked. Report came to Pharaoh that the Israelites were apparently lost and hemmed in. And so he followed his natural instinct, taking along all of his forces with him. As Adam Clark comments on this verse, without any farther restraining grace, God permits him to rush on to his final ruin, for the cup of his iniquity was now full. Verse 5, now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. This is the very first time that Pharaoh has been called the king of Egypt since Exodus 6, verse 29. That was 22 sermons ago. From that verse until now, the title Pharaoh has been used 72 times. Now he is again called the king of Egypt. During all of those verses, the Lord gives the stubborn individual a marvelous display of his power and his majesty, showing him who the true king is. However, as soon as the displays are behind him, he once again reverts to his previous arrogance, and the Bible portrays him as attempting to bring himself up to the level of the true king. The contrast is being made between two peoples, Israel and the Egyptians. He is the king of Egypt, but he is not the king of Israel. However, this verse implies that he thinks he is because they are called the people and not the children of Israel. Only in the second half of the verse do we come to see Israel named, and it is in the context of their service to Egypt. It is following simple words like this that we find wonderful hidden nuggets of gold in the Bible's pages. Verse 5 continues, And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Almost all scholars look at this as Pharaoh realizing that Israel would not come back to Egypt after their sacrifices, which entailed a three-day journey into the wilderness. They say that when Pharaoh made this realization, he then pursued after them. And this is entirely incorrect. A three-day journey into the wilderness implies a seven-day trip if only one day were to be for sacrifice and worship. Israel has had three stops, Sukkot, 
Itam, and now Pihahiroth. Seven days haven't yet passed. Pharaoh had simply dismissed Israel, and now he had simply changed his mind. After a couple of days of seeing the loss of labor by several million people, it would have become suddenly apparent to him that they had made a mistake. As he says with his own mouth, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? Also, the New King James Version makes it sound like the hearts of the people and his servants were turned against their own people. This is not the intent. Rather, it was changed towards Israel. The NIV makes a clear translation in the matter. Here's how they say it. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Pharaoh and his officials had not only let Israel go to sacrifice, but they had let them go, period. Now they have had a change of heart in that decision. Matthew Henry gives us a good look into their pitiful state. Listen to his almost comical words. They who never truly repented of their sins now heartily repent of their only good action. Why have I let Israel go? I must have been nuts for sure. With my son buried, right reason is returned to me. For one sure thing I know, this cannot endure. And I hear that Israel is out camping by the sea. This time I can whoop up on them. I am Egypt's God. Jehovah has spent his last arrow. Now I will find victory. The, this land is mine everywhere that I may trod. And that includes Israel's camp there beside the sea. And after I'm done with my whooping up on Israel, I know what I will do and it just tickles me. Before heading back, this to my troops I will tell. Well done, guys. Let's all go take a swim in that sea. Our third thought today, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It's verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. The Hebrew here is more descriptive than the English. Using the word asar, it says that he bound his chariot. It means that the chariot was bound to horses and prepared for battle. The English simply makes it sound like he checked the uh, air pressure in the tires and he made sure the windshield was clean and then he was ready to go. And this is only the second time that this word for chariot is used. The first was at the burial of Jacob way back in chapter 50 of Genesis. There in the ninth verse, it says that the chariots and horsemen went in attendance as his body was taken back to Canaan for burial. The word for chariot is rechev. It comes from the verb rachav, which means to ride. So in modern lingo, we could say that Pharaoh readied his ride. Along with him, he took his people. All would be prepared for intimidating Israel back to their home in Ramses at the least. Should that uh, be refused, they would be prepared for battle. The pulpit commentary gives a description of the chariot that Pharaoh would have used. Here's what they say. The Egyptian monarchs from the time of the 18th dynasty always went out to war in a chariot. The chariots were, like the Greek and the Assyrian, open behind and consisted of a semicircular standing beard of wood from which rose in a graceful curve the antics or rim to the height of about two feet and a half above the standing beard. The chariot had two wheels and a pole and was drawn, drawn by two horses. It ordinarily contained two men only, the warrior and the charioteer. Verse 7, also he took 600 choice chariots. In verse 7 here, there is a distinction being made which is not apparent in many of our English translations. The first 600 chariots are called choice chariots. These were probably the king's special guard. Nothing more is said about them to describe their style or their function. However, the second group is more distinctive or descriptive. 
Verse 7 continues, And all the chariots of Egypt with their captains over every one of them. These would be the rest of the army of chariots. These would have had three riders in each. Adam Clark details their makeup. He says, According to the most authentic accounts we have of war chariots, they were frequently drawn by two or four horses and carried three persons. One was a charioteer whose business it was to guide the horses, but he seldom fought. The second chiefly defended the charioteer, and the third alone was properly the combatant. The way that we can know that this is a correct evaluation is that the term captains in Hebrew is shalishim. It is the first use of the word shalish in the Bible, and it comes from the word shalosh, or three. This word shalish is used then as an officer of the third rank. He would be the highest over the chariot. As you can see, it's not just 600 chariots that are going after Egypt. It is 600 choice chariots and an unknown number of troop-carrying chariots. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that along with them went 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen, all armed. Whether this amount is true or not, it is still a very imposing force which is hurtling towards Israel. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the last time that the full title, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, will be used when speaking of this man. He is being set in direct contrast to the Lord, who is the king of Israel. The people are separated by the distance, and a battle will ensue between them. But more to reality, it will be the Lord who fights against Egypt, and it will be he who will prevail. As we will see in the coming verses, Moses will tell this to the people. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. In anticipation of that awesome moment, we are told again that the Lord had hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All of the events have unfolded for this marvelous purpose. The Lord is not only the redeemer and the deliverer of his people, but he is also the destroyer of those who fight against him. As the Lord does not change, it is with all certainty that the world of today has miscalculated this particular role of Jesus. Yes, he is our redeemer and he is our savior. He's also the one who will deliver us. But while he does those things, he will also come with a strong and a punishing hand to destroy those who have not pursued him. Verse 8 continues, and he pursued the children of Israel. This portion of the verse is not to be taken as one group running as another chases it. It simply means that Pharaoh left his domain in pursuit of Israel. They are already at Pihiroth, and the message has already been transmitted to him. He's simply heading there to recapture the people who had departed. Verse 8 going on, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Unless these words are being used in the past to show what happened on the night of the Passover, and they are not, the translation doesn't make any sense. In the coming verses, it will show that Israel is more than fearful when they see the Egyptians coming. What makes more sense would be one of two other translations that I found. One is the International Standard Version, and it says it this way, The Lord made the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, stubborn, and he defiantly pursued the Israelis as they were leaving. This makes the defiance an act of Pharaoh. The only other translation that would make any real sense is that of the Dewey Reigns Bible, which says this, 
and he pursued the children of Israel, but they were gone forth in a mighty hand. In other words, it would be speaking of the strength of the Lord in contrast to the multitudes who are now coming against him. It is not speaking of the confidence of Israel. Either way, this has much less to do with their confidence than it has to do with the showdown between the Lord and Pharaoh, as is evidenced by the next verse, verse 9. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army. One thing about this verse is that it confirms that not only chariots went to recapture Israel, but the cavalry and the army followed them as well. The force Pharaoh had mustered would normally be sufficient to handle whatever lay before it. Knowing that the Israelites would not have been well armed and that they were encamped in an area which was impossible for them as a defensive battleground. However, there is more than an arm of flesh to defend Israel. During the reign of Hezekiah, king of Judah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came down to Jerusalem. Probably remembering this very account, which we're looking at in the Exodus of Israel, he spoke these words to encourage the people who had to defend against the overwhelming Assyrian force. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. In response to the boastings of Sennacherib and his attack against Jerusalem, we are told that the Lord went out and in a single night, he killed 185,000 Assyrians. And because of this, the Assyrian king packed up and he left. Like Pharaoh and like Sennacherib, Matthew Henry provides wise words for those who fail to give the Lord the honor he is due. All men, he says, being made for the honor of their maker, those whom he is not honored by, he will be honored upon. Verse 9 finishes with these words, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth before Baal Zephon. Exactly where they were told to camp, Israel stopped and made camp. One can see the uh, children of Israel, they're out there in the ocean and they're picking up curious rocks or shells. The majority of them had probably never seen the ocean in their entire life. Instead of the hard bondage of Egypt, they could sit and they could relax, enjoying the cool breeze of the spring winds blowing off the Red Sea. Instead of hands and bodies agonizing and covered in mud, there would be bodies joyfully covered in sand. The harsh sun beating off the dull-colored mud flats would be replaced with the wonderful, blissful sun reflecting off of the beautifully blue waters. There they were, the multitudes of Israel, camping and relaxing in the presence of a new aspect of God's splendor, even reveling in it. And yet, they didn't know that danger was heading in their direction. The carefree attitude of freedom and ease would soon be replaced with another dreadful moment of fearful angst. They had not longed to cherish their freedoms, and so they would not know how to handle the feelings of trepidation they were so soon to encounter. But if you think of it, even this fits so marvelously into God's plan. One cannot truly rejoice in deliverance until they have tasted the contrast between bondage and ease. A couple sermons ago, I mentioned that some Christian scholars attempt to align the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the day that Israel was conducted through the Red Sea. However, this would not align with the table of stops, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 33. But the Jewish calendar reckons the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread with that day. Accordingly, the final day of the feast would be the day they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. 
if this is so, and it most probably is, then it means that Israel was camped at Pihahiroth for several days. It was surely a merry moment in the life of Israel, and it would fit well with the seven-day feast which was ordained for the generations to come. Here we have a serene picture of Israel camping for several days by the Red Sea, not suspecting that amazing things lay ahead of them, culminating in their seventh day of what would become true freedom, a day which would be remembered for all of time. It is the Lord who brought them into a place from which no known human power could deliver them, but the Lord could. The name Pihahiroth means the mouth of the gorges, and it gives the sense of their being swallowed up by something massive and overwhelming. But on the other side, from them was a place called Baal Zephon. The Lord is watching. Nothing would swallow his treasured possession, Israel. Instead, he would lead them right through the Yam Suf, the sea of the ending, and into a new beginning. It's a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church, which is seen in this crossing. Oh, how the Lord loves his people. Those who have called out to him for salvation, he will, in fact, save. He will deliver them from every trouble and every woe and into a marvelous new beginning. We are the redeemed of the Lord, and we should be assured of this and know this. It is as certain as the air we breathe. But someone listening today may not know the joy of the certain hope which is found in Jesus Christ. You may still have a wall between you and the Creator, an infinite wall which is impossible to pass. Let me tell you how to overcome even the impossible. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He came out of heaven's realm without any of his own known sin, and he dwelt among us, all of us, fallen and sinful. He lived perfectly under the law that God had established for the people of Israel and which only condemned them further by showing them how utterly sinful sin was. And it was intended for them to understand that and to lead them to a need for something else. And that need was walking among them. The Redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ, came and he fulfilled that law and he gave that life up on the cross of Calvary saying, if you will trust in me, I will take your sin upon myself. I will become sin for you and you will become the righteousness of God in me. I'll make that exchange if you will simply do that. And he died on that cross and he took away our sin because the wages of sin is death and he died taking away our sin in that death. But because the wages of sin is death and he had no sin of his own, what happened? He came out of the grave. Therefore, our sin is gone if we are in him. We are now positionally righteous in God or in Christ in God's eyes because of what Jesus Christ did. If you've never taken the moment in your life to simply say, Jesus, I am a sinner and I want you to forgive me. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. We don't know if we're going to have another day or not. So please, if you haven't done it, do it today. All right? That's what I would ask of you. Next week is Exodus 14. It's verses 10 through 20. Oh my, what a word. It's entitled, Stand Still and See the Salvation of the Lord. That'll be our 40th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called The Lord is Watching. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel 
that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth as I am relaying. These instructions to you I do tell. There between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp there. Before it by the sea, I tell you plainly, worry not, in your heart have not a care. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in very well. I intend to go down there and make a stand. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them as I said. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh as stated from the start and over all the army of that knucklehead that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so according to his word. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done thus that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots too and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them, a very large crew. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And as we would guess, he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, a great company, his horsemen and his army, so many men, and overtook them camping by the sea. Beside Pihahiroth, before Baal Zephon, he probably thought such luck would go on and on. What a tragic thing to have a hardened heart. Terrifying it is to the bones very marrow. One should look for a different path and thus depart from the horrendous mistakes that we see in Pharaoh. God has shown us in his precious word that being obstinate towards him can only harm us. Instead, we need now to bow to our glorious Lord, giving honor and respect to Christ Jesus. Help us in this, Lord, this we implore. Our hearts are so easily turned away. Give us of your spirit to overflowing and even more so that we will bring honor to you always, yes, every day. And to you we will give of our highest praise and to you we shall look for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful story. I, you know, the people didn't know what was coming and they're going to be fearful because they're going to see that great army coming at them. But you knew in advance. You set every single thing, thing up perfectly to give them a chance to go swimming and to collect shells, to give them a chance to relax and to see an ocean that they had never seen in their life. And then you prepared them for something something amazing. What a God you are to deliver your people as you do. And we are looking forward to that great deliverance, which is pictured in this story, when you come for us at the rapture. An infinite, infinite divide will be breached. How can that be possible? And yet it is. Your word says that we will dwell with you in heaven during those seven years of tribulation. How wonderful that is. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for everything that you've shown us in your word, week by week, day by day. Every time we open it, it's a new treasure for us to see. What a word. What a great God you are to give us this superior word and to send your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for our sins. Precious is that in our eyes. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you in his name. Amen. Oh, the Lord gives us the instruction for the uh, Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from the hands of Paul. As you noted today, the Lord uh, spoke through people and he gave us his word. And so we can't say it's a writing of men. We can't say it's just a writing of God, but God worked with us in a beautiful fashion to give us his word. And so what Paul was writing was from Paul's hand 
and that it was right from the Lord who wanted us to observe it in a certain way. And uh, we'll try to remember to do that each week, not deviate from the words of the Bible, remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melechaulam Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have said these words. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I'm sorry, I messed that up. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we sure have a lot of people traveling right now and that will be traveling next week, and I would pray that you would be with each one of them as they go out on their uh, journeys, wherever they're heading, 
and that you would uh, keep them safe, keep them protected. And uh, Lord, look after the afflictions that are in the hearts and in the bodies of the people here and uh, help us to uh, just be strengthened in you, even if we have to endure physical afflictions. But if it's your will, we'd be happy to have those things that bother us to be cured as well. And we do pray for that. Lord, we pray for uh, um, just that your will will be done in this church and as a congregation and as individuals. And we do pray for this nation. I, it just It's very sad what's going on in this world. And it's so hard to even say the things that uh, we're talking about sometimes because of the, the deplorable state of the morals of this nation. Lord, I can't ask you to forgive us, but to first turn our hearts back to you and then forgive us when we do. Lord, if we don't, surely your judgment is just. And if we're here during it, then uh, we'll just... Give us a strength, Lord, just to praise you. And we do know that the rapture is coming before the time of tribulation, but it doesn't mean we're going to be exempt from all the troubles that are coming on this world. So, Lord, give us that strength to just praise you, if nothing else. And we do pray for the persecuted Christians in the world who are already facing these terrible trials. Lord, we love you. We exalt you. We praise you. Great are you, O God. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.